All right, so we are in the series where we're looking at, uh, the, if you weren't here last week, just a quick recap. The, the people of God, they were, they were uh, under God's judgment. God had given them multiple times to repent, to turn from their ways. If you were here at the beginning of the year when we looked at Zephaniah, that was kind of the final warning. If you don't change, if you don't turn from your ways, judgment will come. The temple will be destroyed. The city will be destroyed. You will be overtaken. And as often is the case with us in our lives, we don't listen to God. We think he's, ah, you know, I have more time. It'll be all right. And it's not. And God brings them into judgment. The empire of Babylon overtakes uh, Jerusalem, overtakes Jerusalem and takes. It happens actually in three different waves. The book of Daniel covers the first wave for where around 10,000 or so people are taken into exile. And this is just a modern day map uh, of Jerusalem and Babylon is in where modern day Iraq is. And it's around, I actually put it into Google Maps this morning, uh, not because I'm planning on doing it, but if you, if you walk it today, it's a right around 700 miles. And it would have been around that, maybe even more at that point, since they didn't have all the, the roads and 7-Elevens along the way to stop at. I think there's maybe 7-Elevens in um, Iraq, but they, that is the path that they would have gone, a long path trekking through being taken captive. So essentially, these people are prisoners of war. They are hostages. They're people that, however you kind of want to think about it, but they are taken from their culture, their language, their beliefs, their values, everything that they would have known and lived where the worship of Yahweh, the worship of God was central to everything that they were, their entire identity. They're taken from that and brought into a totally new culture that is hostile to them, that is not worshiping the true and only God, that is polytheistic, worshiping all sorts of different gods, that has different values and beliefs and practices where they are now out of place. And this same reality, although not identical, is part of what we experience today. The Bible in the New Testament talks about Christians being in exile, where this is not ultimately our home. We have a different God, and we have an allegiance to a different kingdom, and there's different values and beliefs and practices that the world around us doesn't always share. And so we are asking some of the same questions that they had to ask being transferred to a new place of what does it mean to be faithful? What does it mean now that we're no longer in the culture that totally supports and adopts our values and beliefs and practices? What does it mean now to be faithful? What does that look like? How can I do that? How can I have the courage to do that? How can I have the wisdom to do that? How can I actually live faithful when I'm in a totally different culture that isn't where I came from, that isn't supportive of the beliefs and values and practices and worship that is true and right? This was written to give strength and guidance to people in that kind of situation and for us as well. We have to ask these same kinds of questions. And, and one of the key things or one of the key reasons that we have to ask what does it look like to be faithful is because it can be hard to be faithful when the world is so chaotic around us. It can be hard to be faithful when we are not at peace. It can be hard to be faithful when when we look at the world around us, there's so many problems and there's so many things going on that if we don't have a peace and a confidence and a trust in who God is, it's easy for us to live with fear, to live with anxiety, to live with a, a frustration or a despair or even at times just an apathy of there, nothing I do makes any difference and the world is just kind of all, you know, going to hell in a handbasket or whatever sort of phrase you want to say. And it, it, it can be hard to live with faithfulness when you look at the headlines. I don't know if you look at the headlines much, but it's usually not positive news. A lot of times it's China this and Russia this and inflation this and the market this and this person was killed and this person tragically this and the school system this and a strike here and a strike there and you look at all of that stuff and you look at your personal life. You look at just kind of what's happening in your life. You see problems, you see relational difficulties, you see career difficulties, you see financial difficulties, you see physical difficulties, and it can be hard to be faithful when we are filled with anxiety, 
when we're not at peace, when we're not at rest, it can be hard to be faithful. So the question for today is, how can we have peace and hope when the world around us, big picture, and our own personal lives often has so much in it that causes stress, frustration, despair, apathy? How do we have a hope and a peace when living in exile, in the world around us, and in our own lives. The chapter that we're going to read, chapter 2, is long. So just kind of buckle up, get prepared, okay? Long chapter, but we're going to read the whole thing, and then we will explore what it has to say to us. Daniel chapter 2. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams that troubled him. Some of you have bad dreams. I had some crazy dreams last night, right? And they trouble you sometimes. And sleep deserted him. So the king gave orders to summon the magicians, mediums, sorcerers, and Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. Dreams, sometimes today we kind of go, ooh, what did that mean? Or what? And you might Google it. And you know, he didn't have Google, so he has you know, all these magicians and mediums and people. Sometimes you might feel like that. He goes to talk to a therapist. But dreams, especially back then, had a lot of significance to them. They believed that they were these divine messages. So that's why it troubles him. He's worried about it. And he kind of calls all his advisors in to speak to him. When they came and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream and am anxious to understand it. The Chaldeans spoke to the king. Aramaic begins here. May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will give the interpretation. The king replied to the Chaldeans, my word is final. If you don't tell me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses will be made a garbage dump. Okay, that's intense. That kind of sets the scene. But if you make the dream and its interpretation known to me, you'll receive gifts, a reward, and great honor from me. So make the dream and its interpretation known to me. They answered a second time. It's not going well for them. May the king tell the dream to his servants and we will make known the interpretation. The king replied, I know for certain you are trying to gain some time. Because you see that my word is final. If you don't tell me the dream, there is one decree for you. You have conspired to tell me something false or fraudulent until the situation changes. So listen, even today, if you were to go see a psychic or you were to go see someone do tarot cards or something like that, and you said, here's what's going on in my life, they might be able to give you an interpretation. And a lot of times these people are smart. They know human nature. They can see a ring on your finger. Or they can see a tan line where there used to be a ring on your finger and see maybe something didn't go right. They can see stress. They might be able to read body language and can give you an interpretation. But it's a lot harder to be able to say, let me tell you exactly what you dreamed and what it meant. And so the king is saying, I don't want to take any BS. I want to know that you actually have the power. And in order to know that, in order to know you're not just making something up, you have to tell me what I dreamed and you have to tell me what it means. An impossible situation. So tell me the dream and I will know that you can give me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king, no one on earth can make known what the king requests. Consequently, no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked anything like this of any magician, medium, or Chaldean. What the king is asking is so difficult that no one can make it known to him except the gods whose dwelling is not with mortals. They're saying, we can't do this. This is something only that divine power could do, which is kind of the point that the king is making, so that you would be false if you actually can't do it. You don't actually have divine power. Because of this, the king became violently angry and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. The decree was issued that the wise men were to be executed, and they searched for Daniel and his friends to execute them. Daniel and his friends weren't magicians, they weren't the sorcerers, but they still were included in the class of wise men, the people that had studied the literature and understood things. And so the decree goes out, both these immediate people, but anyone that's kind of in the same kind of field or adjacent field is to be executed. Then Daniel responded with tact and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guards, who had gone out to execute the wise men of Babylon. He asked Arioch, the king's officer, why is the decree from the king so harsh? Then Arioch explained the situation to Daniel. So Daniel went and asked the king to give him some time 
so that he could give the king the interpretation. So they come to Daniel. They say, we're here to kill you. And Daniel says, why is this such a harsh thing? Why is the king freaking out so much? What's going on? He tells him the situation. Daniel says, okay, give me some time. I will give the interpretation. Give me some time. Then Daniel went to his house and told his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter, urging them to ask the God of heavens for mercy concerning the mystery so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of Babylon's wise men. The mystery was then revealed to Daniel in a vision at night. And Daniel praised the God of the heavens and declared, may the name of God be praised forever and ever for wisdom and power belong to him. He changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. I offer thanks and praise to you, God of my ancestors, because you have given me wisdom and power. And now you have let me know what we asked of you, for you have let us know the king's mystery. So Daniel gathers his friends, they pray, and then God gives him a vision. He wakes up, thank you, praises God for what God has revealed to him. Therefore, Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had assigned to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He came and said to him, don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me before the king, and I will give him the interpretation. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said to him, I love how he takes credit, I have found a man among the Judean exiles who can let the king know the interpretation. Yes, Arioch, good job, buddy. The king said in reply to Daniel, whose name was Belthazar. Remember, they changed their names, gave them new identity. If you were here last week, are you able to tell me the dream I had and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king, no wise man, medium, magician, or diviner is able to make known to the king the mystery he asked about. He gives him the same answer that the other people had given him before. I he's a master communicator. He's just building the suspension for the king. Wait a minute. I thought that's why I brought you in here. But he's saying they're right. No one here can do that. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has let King Nebuchadnezzar know what will happen in the last days. Your dream and the visions that came into your mind as you lay in bed were these. So now he tells him the dream. Your majesty, while you were in bed, thoughts came to your mind about what will happen in the future. The revealer of mysteries has let you know what will happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me. Look at the humility here. Not because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but in order that the interpretation might be made known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. Your majesty... As you were watching, suddenly a colossal statue appeared. That statue, tall and dazzling, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was terrifying. The head of the statue was pure gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its stomach and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron, and its feet were partly iron and partly fired clay. As you were watching, a stone broke off without a hand touching it, struck the statue on its feet of iron and fired clay, and crushed them. Then the iron, the fired clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were shattered and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away and not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. Your majesty, you are king of kings. The God of the heavens has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and glory. Remember, at this time, Babylon was the biggest empire that the world had seen. Wherever people live, or wild animals, or birds of the sky, he has handed them over to you and made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. After you, there will arise another kingdom, inferior to yours, and then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule the whole earth. A fourth kingdom will be as strong as iron, for iron crushes and shatters everything. And like iron that smashes, it will crush and smash all the others. You saw the feet and toes, partly of a potter's fired clay and partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom, though some of the strength of iron will be in it. You saw the iron mixed with clay and that the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly fired clay. Part of the kingdom will be strong and part will be brittle. You saw the iron mixed with clay. The peoples will mix with one another but will not hold together just as iron does not mix with fired clay. In the days of those kings, the God of the heavens will set up a kingdom 
that will never be destroyed. And this kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, but will itself endure forever. You saw a stone break off from the mountain without a hand touching it. And it crushed the iron, bronze, fired clay, silver, and gold. The great God has told the king what will happen in the future. The dream is certain and its interpretation reliable. So he gets what he wanted. He gets this interpretation, the dream that had been vexing him. And Nebuchadnezzar fell face down, worshipped Daniel, and gave orders to present an offering of incense to him. The king said to Daniel, Your God is indeed God of gods, Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, since you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel, gave him many generous gifts. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and chief governor over all the wise men of Babylon. At Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to manage the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Take a breath. All right. It's a lot. I think that might be the longest uh, chapter in Daniel. How can we have confidence in exile? How can we have peace when there's so much turmoil and chaos around us? And there's at least three different things that I want to show you from this passage of what helps us to have the confidence. How can we have confidence? The first thing is this. We need to know who God is. God gives this dream and he reveals to Daniel the dream. And the dream is kind of world history. It's this big zoomed out picture of here is world history. But also at the same time, Daniel's in the middle of his own personal chaos of you're going to die if you can't interpret this dream. And so you've got the big picture of chaos of the world history. And then you've got Daniel's own individual situation that he is in the middle of as well. And all these things speak to the big picture of our life and our world, but also our individual lives. How do we have confidence, peace in the middle of world chaos, our chaos? First is we have to know who God is. And here's the big picture. Here's the message of the dream. Everything that we see, all the kingdoms of the world, all the politicians of the world, all the empires of the world, all the situations, they are temporary. This is uh, an image from uh, one of the study Bibles that gives us kind of, you know, a picture of what this could have looked like, walking through the, the various pieces. And most scholars, most commentators will tell you, uh, obviously in the dream, the only specific one that is pointed out is that God tells Nebuchadnezzar, you are the gold head. Babylon's the gold head. And then most scholars will tell you that next came the, the Persian Median Empire, kind of a combo empire of two that teamed up. And then came Greece. Alexander the Great conquered the known world at the time. And then after him came Rome, which conquered even more. But eventually, all of those kingdoms went away. Here is what's left of Babylon. These are the Babylonian ruins in Iraq today. Here's what's left of the Median Persian Empire. It's pretty. It's cool to visit for a museum, but it's destroyed. It doesn't exist anymore. Here is Greece, and I've been here to the top. And again, it's pretty. It's beautiful. You can take a picture here, but it's crumbling. It's fallen to pieces. They've had to restore it. It would be worse than it is now. The ruins themselves are ruined and have had to be restored. Much of the empire, if you want to call it that, or the city of Greece is there. This is just a museum. You can buy a souvenir there. What was once the world's empire, Greece itself, now just a small country, is bankrupt. Rome, same thing. Great place, but Rome was the world empire. Now it's one little city in Italy and is in ruins. You walk around. That's what we call them, ruins, because the empires don't exist anymore. That's what the dream says. There's all these world empires that are huge, that conquer, that say we are mighty, that say even claims of divinity. And eventually, they are nothing. Eventually, they are destroyed. There is this great power. And when you look at each individual section, there is great power. But when you look at the whole, it's this colossal statue, it said. And so just to look at the empires of humanity throughout the ages, it is a colossal statue. 
It looks powerful. It looks mighty. It looks great. But it's temporary. It doesn't last. Every human empire is temporary and doesn't last. It's powerful, but it's weaker than it seems. It's great, but it's much weaker than it seems. This is true of world history, and it's true in our own individual lives as well. When we look at the chaos in our lives, when we look at the worst parts of our lives, when we look at the problems and the turmoil in our lives, whether it's because they're caused by the empires that we live in or it's just caused from a world around us that is hostile to God's kingdom, sickness and death and sin and temptation and all of the different things, when you zoom in on the awful parts of your life, it can feel like that's all there is. You ever watch a movie and if you just were to only watch one minute of the worst part of the movie. I've told you before, we're kind of working our way through all 45 Rocky movies. And uh, we watched Rocky Four recently. And Rocky is getting, spoiler alert, but I think it's way past the statute of limitations on this. If you are, if you're, Rocky's fighting Drago, the Russian beast, huge man. And Drago is destroying him. And if we were just to stop and only watch one minute of Rocky getting pummeled into the ground, if you just watched that, you would say, that's awful. That's it. That's the end. This is, this is sometimes how it feels for us in our life. We zoom in on one scene and feel like this is awful. This is horrible. My whole life is this one scene. But what the dream tells us is on the scene of world history and in our life, it's temporary. The empires of this world, the worst that they have to do, it's temporary. And our life, our personal turmoil that we experience, it's temporary. That's the message of the vision, the dream. It feels like everything at times. If you were living in, if you were living in the Babylonian Empire, that would feel like everything. It would feel like this is awful, but it's temporary. If you were living under the empire and the tyranny of Rome, it might feel like this is awful, this is everything. And the vision says, this is temporary. This is not everything. There's a bigger picture. What's the bigger picture? The bigger picture is that there is a kingdom that is stronger than any of these and all of them put together. And there is a kingdom that lasts longer than these. They're all temporary, but there's a kingdom that is stronger and there's a kingdom that is eternal. There is a kingdom forever that is God's kingdom. This is what Jesus announced at his birth. When Jesus was born, it was announced that the kingdom of God was here. It was announced that the long-awaited king was here. And Jesus himself says, he says, he looked at them, Jesus looked at them and said, then what is the meaning of this scripture? Look at the stone imagery. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will shatter him. Jesus is claiming the language of Daniel for himself, saying that stone image, the stone that is, is insignificant, the stone that is rejected, the stone that seems small, actually becomes the stone that shatters the world's kingdoms. And Jesus here claims, as it's said of him prophesied of his birth and him announcing of himself, the kingdom is here. I am that stone. I am the stone that shatters all the other kingdoms and builds my kingdom. He is the true king and he brings the better kingdom, which is what the interpretation was. The stone that struck the statue became a great mountain, filled the whole earth. It will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, but will itself endure Forever. So we've got all of these temporary kingdoms. We've got all of our temporary problems. But here's who God is. He's in control. And he brings a better kingdom as a better king. And the kingdom is better in several different ways. It says first, you can see here, that it's stronger. It's a mountain. It's not just material. It's not just iron. It's not just bronze. It's not just gold. It is a mountain. It's stronger. It seems small, this little stone, but it destroys the whole statue and all of the kingdoms. God's kingdom is stronger. Now think about kingdoms. Think about these kingdoms and their strength. Their strength was military strength. 
right? It goes into a new area or an existing area and with its military strength conquers people, subjugates people. It makes them do its vision. So its strength is used to conquer things and then to establish its rule. That's what their strength of those kingdoms is for. The kingdom of God is different. The kingdom of God is stronger than that. And it doesn't use physical subjugation. The kingdom of God, though, spiritually conquers people. The kingdom of God overtakes hearts and minds. The kingdom of God has the power not just to physically change things, but it has the power to spiritually change us, which is more powerful. The kingdom of God has the power to enter into our life and spiritually change us. It has the power to, from the inside out, bring change to us. It is stronger. It is more powerful because it doesn't just have a military power, but it has a spiritual power. Now, let me just show you uh, an interesting thing. There's a few different books that I've read. One's called How Christianity Transformed the World. One's called Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. And one is How Christianity Changed the World. These are written by historians that have looked at the effects of Christianity throughout world history. And it's not to say that every single thing is positive. Obviously, there's ways that it has been twisted and used for its own ends. But I'm just going to show you the table of contents from one of them. But it goes through and talks about the sanctification of human life, sexual morality being elevated, women receiving freedom and dignity, how charity and compassion have their roots in Christianity. Hospitals and healthcare really have their roots in Christianity. Education, labor and economic freedom, science, liberty and justice, slavery being abolished, art, architecture, music, literature, and then this says other things, holidays, words, symbols, expressions. But Christianity really is what gave birth to all of those things. Christianity is what gave birth to all of these things. Because the kingdom of God is not just a military power, it is a spiritual power. It is powerful enough to actually change the values, the beliefs, the practices, things that we take for granted, things that we take, think as normal. Even, if, even just to take one of these, if you think about hospitals, if you drive around to the hospitals, most of them are named Lutheran Hospital. Most of them are named Presbyterian Hospital. The most of them have, or St. Mary's Hospital, most of them have Christian names even attached to them because that is where all of that came from. If you think about even just individual lives, the power of God's kingdom when it encounters our lives. I saw another pastor kind of compile some of these different studies, and I, I grabbed these. That if you think about adoption, if you look at all U.S. households and practicing Christians, there's a greater percentage of Christians that adopt children. If you look at mental health, that if you are a, this is about church attendance, an attender versus a never attender, you have 33% reduced risk of death. So congratulations, you're less likely to die today because you're here. You have 84% reduced risk of suicide, 50% reduced risk of divorce, and 68% reduced risk of deaths of despair for women or uh, for men, reduced risk of adolescent depression, reduced risk of illegal drug use, reduced risk of depression. That it, Christian, these are just sociological studies. It's good for your mental health when the kingdom of God brings its power into your life. Some of you will enjoy this. Probability of strongly agreeing that I'm satisfied with my sexual relationship with my partner. Highly religious couples, greater levels of sexual satisfaction. So you need to spice up your sex life? Read your Bible. That's it. It's very simple. Right now, this is helping you, you know? That's why we have baby dedication so often. Uh, if, you look at, if you look at relationship attachment, if you're committed and satisfied and stable in your relationship, it goes up. The more, the final one over here is highly religious and gender traditional couples. I didn't look at exactly how it defined gender progressive or gender traditional, but either way, the highly religious categories are the highest levels of satisfaction. So the point with all that is to say this. Oh, one more, giving to the poor. If you look at Americans who attend church weekly, pray daily, 65%. If you look at other Americans, 41%. So again, our generosity, our commitment, and our pursuit of justice in the world around us. Christianity, because the kingdom of God is a mountain, and it doesn't conquer militarily, but it conquers spiritually, it changes us from the inside out. It has a mountain power. 
It has a power to conquer the selfishness in us, the greed in us, the, the, all the different things that are wrong. It has power emotionally and physically and sexually and relationally to conquer things and build something new. It's a powerful kingdom that has changed the world and changes individual lives. That's the first thing, that the kingdom of God has this power. Second is that it is forever. The kingdom of God goes on forever. It in self endures forever. All other kingdoms have come and gone, but the kingdom of God endures forever. Listen, everything else comes and goes in life, doesn't it? Everything else comes and goes. We were, we were driving, um, we were downtown for a date, my wife and I on Friday, and drove by this giant building kind of near the, the Platte River down there. And it used to be this small little vitamin cottage, if any of you have lived in Denver for a long time. I've seen it. it. used to be the small little vitamin college, cottage with a parking lot downtown. It leveled that and built giant building. I don't even know everything that it is. Stores on the bottom, condos, offices, etc. And we were driving. I'm like, man, remember when that used to be a vitamin cottage? Nothing is forever. You ever go to Blockbuster movie? Yeah. Nothing is forever. Yeah, some of you are like, what's that? I know. Okay, I'm getting older now. So uh, Hollywood video, block. I think there's one Blockbuster still left in the world. Um, those things don't exist anymore. Businesses come and go. Kingdoms come and go. Politicians come and go. Empires come and go. What's popular comes and goes. All sorts of things. People in our life come and go. The kingdoms of this world are unstable. They come and they go. But the kingdom of God is forever. It's unchanging. It's something that in the middle of so much chaos and so much change in our life and so much turmoil and so much turnover, so much, there's something stable that you can build your life on. Everything else will change. Your looks will change. Hate to break it to you. Your financial situation will change because one day you'll have zero because you'll be dead. All sorts of things will change. Your jobs will probably change. Your house, I just was, my, my dad was telling me my uncle's house, and I remember when I was a kid, he had remodeled it, done all this stuff, and, and it's being eaten by termites. Your house will change. Everything will change, but you can stake your life on the unchanging kingdom of God that will endure forever. That's what's true. It endures forever. And then third, the kingdom of God is stronger, it's forever, and it grows. It starts small. It's this, in, the, in the vision, it's this little stone. It's this little tiny stone that hits the statue but then grows into a mountain that fills up the whole earth, it says. That's very similar to what Jesus' teaching was when he said the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. He says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. You can barely see it. When I preached on that a year or so ago, I had a mustard seed. It was tiny and I dropped it. I'm like, did you see it? No, you didn't see it. It's tiny. It's a tiny little thing. Jesus says, but the kingdom of God is like that. But then when it's planted, it grows. It fills up the whole earth. And that's true of Christianity. What's true is that even though it started with 12 followers of Jesus, and that when Jesus died, there was 120 people in a room waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. 120 people. Now, globally, millions all across the world. Christianity is growing. Sometimes when we look at our city or even our country, we can feel, we see the headlines, church attendance is down and less people claiming to be Christians. And that's true. But in the global South, Africa, South America, you know that they will, they say that by, sociologists say that by 2050, China will be a majority Christian nation. That's in a country where they have tried to stamp out Christianity as much as they could. And by 2050, it will be majority Christian. See, Christianity is this little tiny rock that hit the world's kingdoms and looked like nothing. It looked like when you're driving down the freeway and a pebble kind of hits your car and you're like, oh, oh, it's fine. That's kind of what Christianity looked like. And then it grew. And that little stone that hit your car destroyed your car and blew it up. I don't know, that's, the analogy doesn't keep going. But Christianity has spread and continues to spread. It's a little rock that's growing into a mountain covering the whole world. That is what was prophesied, and that is what happened. This is what is true. And listen, the same thing is true in our own life. The same thing is true in our own life, that when God's kingdom comes into your life, when it spiritually conquers you, there is a power 
that is greater than anything. It will last forever in your life, but it often starts small. You often feel like, why am I not changing quick enough? Why are things not happening soon enough? Why am I still the same? Why do I still struggle? Because the kingdom of God grows. It starts small. Listen, in a lot of ways, this feels small. What are you doing? You're just sitting in a chair listening to a guy in a gray shirt. Wow, big whoop. That's pretty small, right? That's not that big of a deal. You, you read your Bible during the week. Okay, whatever. You read a book, the end. Not that big of a deal. You pray for a friend that's struggling with something. Feels like not a big deal. You help someone that's in need in your community. Okay, I help them. Not a big deal. You try to encourage someone, speak a little bit of truth. It feels like, okay, I tried. Not a big deal. You share the gospel with someone that isn't a Christian. You try to help them see how Jesus brings goodness and salvation into their life. Okay, not a big deal. It's small and oftentimes feels like it doesn't matter. And yet, it grows into a mountain in the world and it grows into a mountain in our life. It is those little seeds, those little things of faith where we bring God's kingdom in and through that actually causes big effect over time. That's what's true. His kingdom destroys the other kingdoms and builds a new kingdom. True in world history, true in your family. God, listen, in your family, in your marriage, in your individual life, God wants to destroy every allegiance to every false kingdom that's there. He wants to destroy it. It crushes other kingdoms. That's what he wants to do to the kingdoms that you have allegiance to in your life. He wants to crush them and he wants to build something new that is forever, that is stable, that is more powerful and good and that will continue to grow beyond what you have the ability to do. That's what he wants to do in your life. That's what he wants to do in our church. That's what he wants to do in our world and in our city. So when you feel the pain when you feel the pain of the other kingdoms in this world, when you look at the headlines, when you look at your own life and the turmoil, and you feel the pain of this world, this vision tells us it's not forever. It's not forever. When our hope or our fear is in political change, when our hope or our fear is in financial change, or it's in laws, or it's in budgets, or it's in... Whatever else, the truth is, none of those things are forever. None of those things are forever. They do not ultimately last. When our joy is wrapped up in the success of the kingdoms that we put our hope in, this vision says, those things aren't forever anyway. Those things don't last forever anyway. So how do we stay faithful in exile? How do we have a peace? How do we have a confidence when so much is in turmoil? The first is that we have to know who God is. This is the one I'm going to spend the longest on, just so you know if you're looking at your watch. Uh, the most, we have to see that this is true. We have to see God is in control. We have to see that he is more powerful, that he is stable, that he's the ultimate source of good. That's the first thing. We know who God is. But then it's not just knowing who God is. We have to worship who God is. Listen, this is so key. It is not just knowing truth. It's not just knowing facts about who God is. I just gave you a bunch of facts kind of about who God is. It isn't just knowing those things that will allow you to have a peace and a confidence. It isn't just knowing truths about who God is. So you can say, God's in control, he's more powerful, he lasts forever, but it isn't just knowing those things that gives you the hope and peace and confidence that we need. It is a worship of who he is in those things. So Daniel gets this vision, right? He sees that God's in control of all things, of all world history. But Daniel's going through his own turmoil, his own impossible situation, his own chaos, where his life is on the line. So he needs to know not just truths about who God is, but how that's true for him right now. He needs that. And that's exactly what he experiences. He prays and says, there's a progression here where he says to God, wisdom and power belong to him. So he's praising God and he says, these are some true attributes of you. Wisdom and power belong to you. And then he says, he gives wisdom to the wise. So that moves a, another step. He says, you are wise and powerful, 
and you give wisdom and reveal things to people, but he still hasn't gotten to himself, but then he does the final part of the prayer. You have given me wisdom and power. Here's who you are. Here's what you do. And you've done it for me. That's a progression that we have to move through. That's what worship is. It's we see who God is. We know facts about him. We know truth about him. We know he's loving. We know he's present. We know he's wise. We know he's powerful. We know he's in control. And we know that he uses that. But sometimes we stop there and think it's just, it exists there. Here's facts about God. And here's kind of what he does in the Bible. But you do it for me. You are this way to me. You give wisdom and power to me. You love me. You're in control of me. It's not just that you're in control of the world. Yes, we need that truth. It's not just that God's in control of the world, though. He's in control of your life. It's not just that God has power over the world. He has power over your life. It's not just that God has all wisdom and he creates the laws of gravity and the laws of the solar system and Newton's thermodynamics and whatever else. I don't know what I'm talking about. It's not just that. It's that he has all wisdom in your life and he uses it for you. See, Daniel moves from facts and knowledge and truth to worship, saying, you've given it to me. You've shown your power to me. You've done this for me. It becomes personal. That's the same thing that we need. What are you facing in your life that feels impossible? What are you facing that feels difficult, that feels chaotic, that feels out of control? What are you facing where you feel like there's truth about God that exists, but you need it? Where are you apathetic? Where are you losing hope? Where are you anxious and not at peace? This is what we need. And what Daniel sees and what he responds, how he worships God is he sees that God is saying, I'm not just all powerful, but I'm all powerful to you. God says, it's not just you. Man, if, if you leave even just with maybe one truth, I hope you leave with a lot of truths, but if you leave even with just one truth, you need to know it's not just you. If Daniel was by himself in that situation, torn limb from limb, house made a garbage dump, or whatever Nebi said, you need to know it's not just you. God says, I'm the all-wise, all-powerful God, and I want to give it to you. It's not just you. You see what happens? If we worship, if we see who God is and praise him for who he is, it takes truth that we know, and it moves it into our heart. It takes truth that we know that's on audio, maybe, and moves it into video. It takes truth that we know and moves it from facts into faith. That's what worship does, which is why it's so important for us to gather together. This is only one part of what worship is, but we sing songs hoping that that truth moves deeper into our heart. We, we open up God's word hoping that that truth gets impressed into our heart. See, you, you already knew before you came in here today, you already knew God was in control, right? I mean, I mean, no one I don't think probably walked in here and was like, I bet God's really surprised by some things that happened yesterday. No one thinks that. Everybody knows God's in control, but you need that pressed into your heart. That's part of what worship is, where we see, okay, so God, this is true for me. We need these rhythms of Bible and prayer and conversation with other Christians that help move truth from fact into faith, from general to personal. And the final thing is we need to respond to who God is. So we need to know who God is, worship who God is, and then respond to who God is. See, what, what effect would happen in our life if we knew and worshiped and trusted who God is? How would that shape how we relate to other people? Well, you know what it did for Daniel? First is it gave him a humility because he knew who God was and he knew that that's who God was to him. It gave him a humility. Even what it says here, it says Daniel responded with tact and discretion. Imagine if someone came to your house and they said, hey, just so you know, 
I'm here to give you the order that you've, you're going to be executed. Do you think tact and discretion is the initial response that you're going to have? Probably not. And then even later, it says he went and asked the king to give him some time. This is just showing he's not freaking out. He has a patience, a humility, a respect. Why? Because he knows who God is, that God's in control. And he knows God will use that control in his life, will exercise it towards him. And so he's able to have a humility, a patience. He doesn't freak out. The more that you know that God is in control of your life, the more that we will respond like this to all the different things that are happening in the world and in our individual life. We'll have tact, discretion, respect, patience. It will change how we respond. The second thing of how it changes how we respond is very simple and yet so powerful is prayer. As soon as he gets this order, he urges his friends and himself to ask the God of heavens for mercy. So think about what's hard in your life right now. Think about what's hard in the world right now. What's our instinctual response? Is it prayer? I know a lot of times for me, it's not. I know that a lot of times when I see a problem, my instinct is to make a plan, to figure out how to solve it, to ask uh, coaches and advisors and friends, what, what do we do about this? To uh, think about it, to study it. Daniel gets this impossible situation and his instinct is, I need more than me. And he prays. What if that was first? What if that was our instinct? What, was, what if that was not what we had to be reminded of or told to do? What if that wasn't kind of third, fourth, fifth down the list? But what if our instinct was hard situation, difficult, impossible, fear, anxiety, pray? What if that was instinct, immediate and constant? That would change things, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it change if whatever's going on in your life that's hard, that's difficult, that you say, I don't know how we're going to do this. I don't know how I can figure it out. I don't know if I have what it takes. Wouldn't it change things if the gut response and constant response was, I need more than me. I need God. Do you believe that he wants to give you wisdom and power? Do you believe that he's involved and present? This is what changes how Daniel responds in his life. He has a humility. He prays. And there's a boldness too. I won't put a quote up there just because it really is through the whole story, but there's a boldness that he goes back to the king. He's willing to go back to the king and listen, tell the king, eventually your empire is going to be destroyed. Like that takes some guts. That takes a boldness, but that boldness comes from again, a confidence in I know who God is. I know who he is to me. So I can be bold. I can actually be bold in situations. I can speak truth, not to put Nebuchadnezzar in his place, but to serve. I'm doing it with humility and patience and boldness. See, this creates a calm. It creates a peace. It creates a lack of anxious tension. It might be true in your life, or it might be true in people's lives around you, that people are like Nebuchadnezzar. Sleepless nights, stressed out, freaking out about the future, about what's going to happen, not knowing the answers, not knowing what's coming. And God may just put you in those people's lives so that you can have a non-anxious presence that's able to be humble, that's able to be bold, that's able to serve, that's able to pray for and with, to be able to say, I don't have to fear these things because there's a God that's in control. What if even the people around you that struggle, God has put you there, like Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar, to be a non-anxious presence? This is what God wants for you, but it's also how God wants to use us in people's lives, to be able to be a non-anxious presence, when the world around us is in chaos, when the world around us is freaking out, but we can be rooted in God's in control, God's wise, God's kingdom lasts forever. This is the response that God has for us. 
So we can look at the world and we can fear. We can look at the world and we can look at our lives. We can look at the headlines. I know for me, I, I look at the headlines sometimes and like, man, it can be hard. We look at those things. We look at our own lives and we can be filled with a lack of peace. We want to be faithful. We want to be confident. We want to be able to be at peace. That comes as we know who God is, as we see who he is to us, and as we then live in response to that truth. We're going to take communion in just a moment. When we, if you're a Christian and you didn't grab a little cup on the way in, grab one of those. When we take communion, we're remembering that Jesus came into this world, the true king, and he himself was, it looked like, destroyed by the world's kingdoms. That his body was broken, that his blood was shed. It looked like the end. But it was through his death and through his resurrection that his kingdom was established. That it destroys other kingdoms and builds a new kingdom, builds a better kingdom in our lives, in our hearts. And so when we take communion, we're remembering the true story of history. That no matter what we see, there's a true story. There's a true king. And that our sins are forgiven if we are connected to him because his death was on our behalf. And his life brings life to us. And so as you take communion, pray. Tell God what you're facing. Pour out your heart to him. Share with him. Here's what's going on. Here's what's difficult. Here's where I see in the world or where I see in my life pain. And ask him to help build your trust and your confidence in who he is. Ask him to help build your trust and your confidence in his power and his enduring kingdom forever. So we're going to pray and then we're going to sing a few songs. I'll be in the back if anyone would like prayer for anything, for healing in their life or anything related to what we talked about today. God, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you that you are the powerful king that brings your kingdom into this world and into our lives, our hearts. I pray that you would build our faith in you, that you would build our confidence in you, that we would see that you are faithful, and that would lead to our faithfulness, our peace, our confidence here. In your name, Jesus. Amen.